0: Rambam, Hilcha is the laws of schia, acquisition. Um, Umatona and the laws of gifts. (coughs) And we have repeatedly studied the principle in Jewish law that there has to be a moment, a process of acquisition. How does an object become mine when a few minutes ago it was yours? So this is a whole legal definition. And today we study some very interesting facts. Aleph 1, there are a whole category of transactions which fall into the word gifts. Person A gives a gift to person B. Nothing is exchanged in return, except good feelings. If somebody receives a gift, now we've learned earlier that you can't just say, I'm giving you a gift, the guy says, thank you, and it's a done deal. That's not called receiving a gift, that's called statement of intention. There has to actually be a physical receipt, acquisition. So if somebody receives a gift, and he acquires it, he does whatever act of acquisition is mandated. And after he took possession of it, and at the moment he took possession, he was silent. Now there's a principle in Jewish law which says, silence suggests agreement. Somebody's silent, it's like they agree with what was said, or what was done. So the guy was given a gift, he said nothing. He changed his mind, seemingly. And he said, I don't want it. Get it away from me, I don't want it. Or, he said, I am not receiving this. Or he says, this act is null and void. I nullified this whole deal, not interested. Or, perhaps he said, look at this blemish. A blemish that he didn't see earlier, even though... The Somebody used to tell me repeatedly, shinkin a fair designer? when somebody gives you a gift horse, you don't look at it in the mouth. You don't inspect the mouth of the horse to see how it is. It's a gift, you take it. But this guy didn't like the mouth. He said there was a blemish. Le omar nothing he says means anything. Why? Because in the very beginning he received it, he accepted it, he took it, he said nothing, you can't later change your mind. Now obviously he can walk away from it, but that's the issue we're going to be studying. Does it belong to the donor because the whole gift is invalidated? Or does it just become public unclaimed property because the recipient walked away from it? Shame, shame, anais, and yachalazabay. Just as we have a principle that says the donor wants the gift and the transaction and the acquisition is done. Can't retract. So, also the recipient, once he makes or does an act of acquisition, he can't retract. What's the difference? So, here the Nambam says, matonozu this gift. where the recipient said, I don't want it. After, it. after he acquired it, after it came to him, what happens to this gift? Mr. A gave something to Mr. B. He received it. He took possession of it. And then he says, No, I don't want it. <laughs> okay, you know, nobody can force you to do anything. What happens to it? This, because the recipient now renounces it, it becomes ownerless. The recipient owned it. He walked away from it. It's now owned by no one. What's the law with ownerless property we learned earlier? The first one that gets to it can acquire it. Because here you have a recipient who took possession of it. And then he said, I don't want it. So now it's ownerless. Anybody from the street can take it. What's the key here? The point is it does not go back to the donor. It has nothing to do with the donor. However, a different scenario. If the recipient is screaming, from moment one, I don't want it. He never acquires it. What happens if the recipient does not acquire the object from the donor? It goes back to the donor, because it never left the donor's possession. So there's a big difference. In the first scenario, it's ownerless. Whoever comes and gets it, has it. In the second scenario, it is now, once again, reverts back to the property of the donor. Big difference. What if somebody comes and gets it? He's a thief. Along the same lines, we learned a principle earlier, a very important principle in Jewish law. And that is, we can do something, we can acquire for someone else, as long as it's a good thing for him. Which means if somebody wants to give me something for you, I can take it, even though you're in Hawaii. Why? Why not? But when you come back and you say, I don't want that, get away. You have now revealed that you don't want it, so I could have never taken it for you. So there was no acquisition. If somebody transfers ownership to a second person through a third party, he gives something to me for you. Kibben Shehazig Ba'achar wants the third party. Does an of acquisition. Convention for example. He tugged or pulled the portable object. In the case of portable objects, Mishikah, to pull it. In the case of real estate, he actually took possession of the contract, the, the documentation. In the case of real estate, he did acts of acquisition, like putting up a wall, opening, closing, and so on. The fact that this person did something on behalf of someone else, that someone else, even though he's not here, doesn't know about it, acquires it. Even though it never reached his possession. The donor cannot retract. Given is given, but the recipient doesn't even know about it yet. That's okay. If it's a good thing, it's a good thing. What if it's not a good thing? Uh-huh. This is literally meant his hand is on top. He has all the options. In once the recipient hears about this and finds out about it, if he wants it, he says, yes, I accept, it's fine. In Lay if he doesn't want it, he just says, no, thank you. And retroactively, it's not his. Here's the principle because we can acquire something which is a positive experience for another person even when they're not there and don't know about it. We can never do harm to someone on their behalf. Anything harmful cannot be acquired for someone. It's a good thing to get a gift, if the guy wants a gift. But if he doesn't want a you can never force someone to accept a gift. A gift has to be accepted willingly. I never tire of telling the beautiful story of the boy scout who came late to his troop meeting. And the scout master says to him, you're late. How, how come you're so late? You're 30 minutes late. He says, ah, this time I have a good excuse. I was helping this old lady cross the street. He says, that's terrific, but 30 minutes? Why did it take so long? He says, uh-uh. she didn't want to cross. Helping an old lady cross the street if she doesn't want to cross is not a good deed. What if he acquires through someone else. What if the donor gives it to the recipient through an intermediate party? Shoshama when the recipient heard about this gift. Shosaki was quiet. and then later, Tzobach, started screaming. B'yomar, and he said, Eni I will not accept this. So this is the question. What is the real act? The quiet, which means I accept, or the screaming, which means I don't accept. Here, first he was quiet, and then he screamed. So going back to discussion in the Gemara, this is a doubt. This is a situation of doubt. For sure. Im if, when he remained silent at first. This means he wanted it. And when he started screaming, he changed his mind. In that case, that's a problem. Or perhaps he was silent. Because he didn't even realize that he had anything. He didn't digest it yet. It's not his yet. And the fact that he is voicing objection As soon as he realizes what's going on, this retroactively shows he's not interested. So, did he acquire it or not? The answer is, we don't know. There's an unresolved debate in the Talmud. When we go back to the principle of hamotzi Mechabero ala of possession is nine tenths of the law. When you want to remove something from someone else's possession, the burden of proof is on you. What's the issue here? What if someone else comes along and grabs the item? If it was ownerless, he can. If it was not ownerless, it can back to the donor. He can't. And other. you can't remove it from this guy's possession. Shemav, I'm Perhaps the recipient did acquire it. The the moment he said, "I don't want it," how he Made it ownerless. Then this guy came along and took it to make sure the other as we explained earlier. The Therefore, the one that went and took it from an ownerless state acquires it. however, if the first owners went back, was v'suah miyad it. From the guy who acquired it, he gives you your dog. You don't take it away from him. Shem haMakabeli zochah because it's a possibility that it is the donor's. Why? Perhaps the recipient never received it, never acquired it, never did an acquisition. As soon as he says, "I don't want it," he retroactively reveals to us that he doesn't want it. Therefore, retroactively, never acquired it. What happens if someone never acquires something? It reverts back to the possession of the donor. Well, the Shushbalim are changing the it still belongs in the possession of the original donor. By the way, what we're learning now is typical Talmudic logic. If he acquired it, it's his. He doesn't want it; it's ownerless. But if retroactively he never acquired it, then it never came to him. So where does it go? Back to where it was. And that is the donor. This is why Talmudic scholars make good lawyers because they were trained when they were nine years old. You know? Now, Ruben should also lead in the Here's a beautiful scenario. Mr. A, who we call Ruben, wants to give a hundred dinars, a lot of money, $10,000 to Mr. B, who we call Shimon. Okay, Mr. A is in Los Angeles, Mr. B is in San Diego. Sends him the money, the hundred dinars, the $10,000, through Mr. C, who will call B. if Mr. A. Ruben says to A.B., here, Mr., acquire this hundred Zeus for Shimon, or give this hundred Zeus to Shimon. So, Mr. A, the donor, is actually giving it to the third guy, and he gives him the task of accepting it for him or giving it to him, A Then there's no retraction possible. As soon as Mr. A gives it to Mr. C and he says acquire it for Mr. B. As soon as Ruben gives it to the lady and says, Here, take it for Shimon, take it to Shimon, can't Anyach, never mind, I change my mind. Shimon's in San Diego and never know difference. It was before the internet. if he said to him, he gave him a different task. He charged him with something different. He said, Hey Luch Meya Shimon, give this hundred dinar, these hundred zuz to Shimon. Now he's giving him a delivery job. He's like UPS. The fact that I give something to UPS doesn't mean that the recipient already acquired it. He acquires it when they deliver it. You know, he can retract up to the moment that the object reaches the fellow. Up to that moment, it's in transit. So retraction is possible. Hey. As they say, the plot thickens. The messenger, lady travels with this bundle of money that was sent with him by Reuben to Shimon. He finally gets to San Diego. He's looking all over San Diego County for Shimon. He even looked in Marineland. Well, no, that's not San Diego. And he couldn't find him. So he comes back to Ruben in Los Angeles. He says, I'm sorry, I went to every cultural restaurant. In San Diego, the guy's not there. I don't know what to do. It goes back to Ruben. Why? Because it's not deliverable. What happens if UPS tries to deliver something, and they can't find a the recipient? They return it. Not deliverable. So being that he was just a delivery guy, there was no acquisition here. Who does it belong to now, Ruben? What if Shimon dies while Ruben is alive? And here, the messenger has the object, the donor, I'm sorry. The recipient died during the lifetime of the donor. Yazel ruv, he should give it back to the donor or or to his heirs. to The heirs of Shimon. Mezel ruv in bechayishimon. What if the donor dies during the lifetime of Shimon? Yitan meyosha or Let him deliver it either to Shimon or his heirs. Why? The transfer was not yet done. No, but it was in the process. Shemitza the kind es. It's a mitzvah to fulfill the desire of someone who was dying and died. Aba pisha amad dwarim, Even though it doesn't have the special law of a person who gives his estate away moments before his death, which is called Sabo ashchib We're going to learn in great detail about that. Still, shadamei abiyos shlishi because it's still in the hands of the proxy of the messenger. Moving right along, next halacha very interesting. A person cannot acquire a gift on behalf of someone else. Unless the person who's making the acquisition will be of majority age, and mature. A healthy, mature majority age. Not someone who lacks mental maturity. You have to be a bench, which means over the age of Bar Bas Mitzvah, and healthy. Does it have to be a male? No. Whether male, or female, a man or a woman, either one could act as the person to acquire on behalf of anyone. Even a woman who's married and has certain joint financial responsibilities with her husband, and he can object to certain issues. As we learned earlier, the Torah deal, that a man completely has to support his wife, and that which she acquires goes into that community pot. So can she become a messenger, a proxy, to acquire something for a stranger? The answer is, why not? Sure. Unless it's something to do with her husband, that's something else. But if it's not her husband's property, that's... A, in other words, the husband and wife are like One. Or a servant, a servant, anyone who is of the age of maturity and mentally astute, not a shelter, is able to acquire. Now, these laws, by and large, are between Jews and Jews. As we've learned many times, non-Jews, as a rule, follow the laws of non-Jews. Being that These laws are laws of the Jew. A non-Jew does not get involved in all of these laws of acquisition. Therefore, he can't acquire on the behalf of someone else. We learned earlier that in the case of real estate, in other situations, the non-Jew does what he's used to in his world. And therefore, we have to respect that form of acquisition. They don't follow rabbinic forms of acquisition. In general, to be a proxy in Jewish law, for example, can a man give a bill of divorce to a non-Jew and say, here, give this to my wife? The answer is no, because a non-Jew can't engage in Jewish divorce. So also, also, he can't act as one to acquire. Commentaries say, but if he's acquiring on behalf of another non-Jew, that's fine. Or, in certain situations, it is acceptable. Just as a Jew cannot acquire on behalf of a non-Jew, he cannot acquire for a non-Jew. So again, these are very detailed laws, and there's a lot of comments from different halachic authorities on the whole idea of accepting on behalf of a non-Jew, a non-Jew accepting on behalf of a Jew, and so on and so forth. Not a simple law, being that these laws of acquisition are laws between Jew and Jew. and now we talk about a minor, a a minor? A child, can a child acquire, well, we give him a test, we give him a pebble, and say, here, you know, here's a pebble, it's very expensive, it's a lot of money, and then we see what he does with it, he throws it away, and say, ah, oh, this is a smart kid, but we give him a nut, nuts were, what candy is today, that's what nuts were, then. you give him a nut, and likely he takes it, this is good, this is a child who's on the ball, this child who passed the pebble nut test, he gets to acquire, but being that he's a minor, he can't acquire on behalf of others, but this, if you give him a pebble, he's not chewing on it, he can't accept, acquire, not for himself, and not for anybody else. So also, somebody who's not mentally mature, can't engage in an acquisition, not for himself, and not for someone else. What if somebody wants to give a mentally immature person a gift, and he gives it to a healthy person to acquire on their behalf? This is fine. But we learned earlier in great detail the idea of a deaf mute, and the laws of a deaf mute are problematic, but much more lenient than someone who's mentally not mature. deaf mute can acquire for himself, as we explained earlier in the laws of robbery. We can acquire Lakotan for a child. In other words, I can give you something and say, here's for your baby. A filibang even a newborn. Will the goddamn to an adult whether the adult is there or not there. And as an extension of what we learned earlier, the shall A person's courtyard acts as a tool of acquisition, even if he doesn't know. Aba pisha even though he's not there. Once the gift comes to the person's courtyard, and as we did learn and we will learn, it has to be a chatser amishna a guarded courtyard. It can't be a wide open field. it has to be fenced in, gated. But if you put something in somebody's yard and it's guarded and gated, it's as if it is in his possession. And now the Rabban qualifies, as he always does, test on when this is applied, a chatser amishna a guarded courtyard. As we call it today a gated community. No, I'm just kidding. A guarded courtyard. But in a wide open courtyard, that's not guarded. To for example, what's an example of a wide open courtyard? So today, a person's field, fields by and large, you're not going to have fences and walls around them. The or an old rune, an old house that's not really secure. Actually, I need to be the person has to be standing, And he has to verbally state, Zuch so Sada, I might be able to to me. The thing we also learned extensively earlier that Arba Amishaladim, that the four amos, the four cubits around the person, that's his personal property, the four, the space of six feet around me, that's four amos or six feet, acquires for me, that's my immediate personal area, provided that. It's in the right place, either in the area at the side of the public area. They used to have a public area where business used to be done, then off to the side is a semi-public area, called the Simto, we learned earlier. On the sides of the public area, or in a public or non-owned courtyard, this is a place where my immediate four going can acquire from me. You put something next to somebody, it's theirs. But literally in a public setting, my immediate environment can't acquire anything in a public setting. because There could be six people coming next to me. Or in someone else's field, I, my immediate environment can't acquire. If it's your field, only the hand of the recipient acts as a tool of acquisition. Now we learned earlier, because of the laws of divorce, and because the young lady can receive the divorce in her hand, her courtyard is an extension of her hand. Uqtana, a minor woman, a girl, we learned that her courtyard can act as a tool of acquisition, as well as her immediate environment, but a male child, being that his courtyard is an extension of shlichus, of being a proxy, and he doesn't acquire until the gift comes to his hand, until somebody takes it, accepts it on his behalf. Now we learn it can, a gift, in many ways, to get is like a bill of divorce. You can't convey words to a middle man to a shliach. Words don't work in the case of divorce. Kate for example. Omar What if the husband who wants to affect a divorce to his wife says to a group of three people, this is good, and Jewish law three is like a bad deal. He says to three people, Imruleplain you plenty, go tell so-and-so. He says to three people, go tell so and so, who is so-and-so? A scribe. She they should sign, or to witnesses, they should write, and they should sign a document of gift. Be the and give it to so and so. This means nothing because it's all verbal. This fellow is speaking to three people and he says, Go tell these two people to write, to do. Too much, go tell. Ains, it's meaningless. And if he said to those witnesses, He did exactly what he was, these three did exactly what they were told, and they wrote and they gave Lakonis nothing. Also said to two people, they have to do it themselves because here they were commanded to do it that's why but they can't convey the mission they themselves have to write to maybe get like in the case of a get so they can't be middlemen in this oral flow you if somebody writes a document we know the documents are great when it comes to real estate and he writes that i have given this field to so and so writes this i gave it i it is this is a kosher document when the recipient gets the document he has the field if he writes in the document at i will give it to him well, maybe you won't. Even though there are witnesses who said, You said you will. There's no act of acquisition here. I mean, you want to keep your word, you should keep your word. it's a mitzvah to keep your word. But the act of acquisition was not done because somebody said, I will. I'll give him until he says to the witnesses, Write a document of gift. And give him the case for the nation and they write and they give. The rule of thumb is that the recipient never acquires it until the document of gift reaches his hand. Or somebody else does an act of acquisition on his behalf. As we explained, you'd base 12. If somebody says, Plainly, the plain is. The donor says, I gave this this field to so-and-so, who and the recipient says, Absolutely not. He never gave me anything. Why would this dispute take place? Well, maybe someone is trying to take the field away from the donor. Maybe the field was leaned, and a creditor is trying to collect on that field. (coughs) So the donor says, No, I gave it away. I gave it as a gift to my brother-in-law. Now it's making sense, right? The guy's trying to foreclose on it. (coughs) He says, It's not mine. (coughs) The recipient says, Never happened. We should be concerned. We are concerned. Maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe he gave it to the recipient. The recipient didn't know about it because there was somebody else who, who accepted it on his behalf. But if he said, I wrote a document and I gave it to him, there's no middleman. And he says, Look, It never happened. You didn't write. You didn't give. If the one who received the gift allegedly says this, we have a principle. When the actual litigant, when the actual party himself makes a declaration, it's as good as 100 witnesses. He says, You never gave it to me. And the giver is entitled to have the produce. It never happened. But If the son of the recipient says, "When I saw the saw this you never gave this to my father." When he says, "I did." Now we don't. A son doesn't know what somebody gave to his father. You have to place the produce in escrow until it will be investigated and ascertained, because the son doesn't know what was given or not given to his father. Next scenario: The recipient of the gift argues and says, "Yes, I have the object in question, but it was not a gift." I am. I was asked to watch it. I'm a shomer. I'm a Bailey. I'm watching it. Okayetze because the big issue in Jewish law, as we just learned earlier, is possession. The fellow has possession, but he says, "I have possession, but it's not mine. I'm just watching it." Then, Eishar says, "This whole deal, this whole gift, was nullified from day one." When the donor came and gave it to me, I never accepted it. And the Bal Korchi Ba'Enes, because he forced it on me or by accident it came to me. Okayetze B'Dvar or anything similar. The daughter Koyamim. Then we accept his words. Why do we accept his words? Because he has possession. Whoever has possession has a stronger position. Possession gives position. When Nishba and he takes an oath. I'll say, what kind of an oath? A rabbinic oath. was rabbinically ordained oath? Because he has possession. He has the right now to give it back. Because it's in his possession, but he's explaining. I, I, it's not really mine. but if the donor argues and says, Yes, you have it in your possession, but I didn't gift it to you. Shame not to Allah, you, you're just watching it. Ashamar he says, the donor says, Shall to I never intended to give it to you. the donor says, the elected donor says, It's stolen in your hands. The the recipient says, Atonosatali, what are you talking about? You gave it to me. Again, it's in the possession of the recipient. Possession is a strong position. Nishma HaMakab, the recipient, takes a rabbinic oath. She was Ben Niftir, and he walks away because it is in his possession. He's the one that gets to take the oath, and we believe him. End of chapter 4. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchah, the laws of Zechia, acquisition. In Jewish law, you need to do an act of acquisition, ummatona, and gift. The previous section was about sales, selling, buying. This is not about selling. This is about how you acquire something and how, you, how one gives and receives a gift. And the laws of gifts are more complex, or they're certainly different than the laws of selling and buying. When it comes to selling and buying, the seller delivers the object to the buyer, the buyer delivers payment to the seller. When it comes to a gift, why would someone give a gift? There's got to be a reason. There's a principle in Torah. If he wasn't causing him a good feeling, he, wasn't, he wouldn't be him, giving him a gift. If he's not giving him joy, pleasure, like a parent gives a child a gift, because the child gives nachas. Gifts are not given for no reason. And when gifts are given for no reason, we know something is strange. And we're interested in finding out if there's something strange. So just a little bit of an approach to what we're about to learn. We also learned earlier that there are certain leniencies, which we have not yet spelled out, when a person is on their deathbed and they're dying. At the last moment, they make certain statements, which by rabbinic law have tremendous weight because of the fact that there is no better time, uh, or there is no tomorrow, so to speak. Okay. Aleph one. If somebody gives a gift to someone else, whether the donor of the gift is healthy or ill, secret gifts are problematic. There has to be full disclosure. Rabbinic law requires that gift to be revealed and publicized. In today's world, we have the whole idea, whether you have a purchase or a gift, of recording a deed of trust. Why do you record a deed of trust? Because you don't want secrets. Because you don't want someone to think that they have a lien on a property when, in fact, they don't. Recording is today's world's idea of publicizing. There are no secrets when it comes to gifting things. Ownership is important that the world beware of. Because if you make a loan to someone and you take a property that's not really free and clear, and you think you have that property, but you really don't, that's a problem. my What if a person says to two witnesses, listen, guys. I want you to write a contract. Quietly. Under the table. And give this guy the contract. Then I'm giving him my I don't know what. Says, it is meaningless. Secret gifts don't count. Surely we assume that there is a trick going on here. There's some subtle underhanded action. Someone's trying to harm someone. You're trying to put a lien on a property or something like that. To mess up the other guy. And then he's going to go sell it after giving the gift. Some kind of shtick is going on here. And when the purchaser will try and take possession of his purchase, he's going to find out it's lien. And he bought the Brooklyn Bridge. People buy the Brooklyn Bridge every day. Sometimes the Williamsburg Bridge. Fikach too, therefore, as karkash and any document concerning real estate, which does not have the words or the idea, the gist of the witness is witnesses right, and they say, And he said to me, plainly an saying the guy who was giving the donor said to us, Shwubashwokimus, we want you to sit down in the roads and on the public streets, which means don't go in a basement somewhere. Do this publicly. The kiss below and write for him, Matona a gift, Gluyo omo revealed and publicized. That is a real gift. Other than that, something is wrong in general when it comes to matters of this nature we're always suspicious maybe it's a concealed gift for some kind of surreptitious underhanded reason and the recipient really does not acquire so we've got to be really suspicious why is the gift happening and why is it happening in secret somebody who writes two documents showing gifts both on the same field the first document is confidential and the second document is revealed in public so again, we give very little credibility to hidden documents, to concealed documents. We'll, we'll use modern terminology. To unrecorded deeds. Ahren kono, the last one, the public one, really brings about the acquisition. We said that a contract is the best way to bring about an acquisition in real estate. Even if the first deed does not mention that it should be hidden, it just doesn't talk about it. He doesn't talk about hiding, it doesn't talk about revealing. It just talks about a gift. the last gift, which is public knowledge, is the one that really brings about the acquisition. we already explained earlier at great length in the laws of sales, chapter 10 that when a person lodges a protest, a person goes to the court, he says, listen guys, what I'm about to do is meaningless because I'm not doing it out of my own free will. The guy has a gun at my back. He registers that statement with the courts. That's called, moser mo I'm giving a declaration, a protest. And then he gifts someone with something. The protest says, it's a problem. Even though it's not a question of force, nobody's forcing, sometimes social pressure is also forced. Here is the key. This is the crux of the matter. When it comes to gifts, we always follow the intent of the donor. We want to know what's really in his heart. In, t- in general, in total law, we say that what's in your heart doesn't matter. Unless you're talking about arteries. Arteries matter. But let's not talk about what's in your heart. Let's talk about what's on the paper. When it comes to gifts, we want to know what's in your heart too. Because a gift, especially by rabbinic law, must be wholeheartedly given. If not, we suspect it is an ulterior motive for some reason and there was no sincerity. And being that he lodged the protest, he revealed that he's not interested in really doing this gift. He's doing it for an ulterior motive. Therefore, his gift is not in the boyfriend. Therefore, in a case where the facts of the story reveal that the guy's heart was not in this gift. Why? Look at the facts. The facts speak for themselves. Even in the case where it was a gift given above board, revealed, publicized, and it was discovered that earlier there was a hidden gift. Earlier, the same property was gifted to someone else, quietly. And now there's a whole big public gifting because gifting needs intent both of these gifts the quiet one and the public one are null and void why is the first one null and void because we learned earlier that private secret gifts are no good because it's quiet because it's secret it's concealed it's hidden the second gift why is that null and void because the facts reveal that he's not even in giving this gift the proof is he already gifted the earlier gift albeit secret revealed that there's something wrong and there was no sincerity with the second gift therefore they're both no good and here the Rambam does what he sometimes does he tells a story listen to this story there was a story with a fellow he wanted to marry this and this woman. She's the one he wanted to marry. But she was a practical woman. She said to him, listen, my friend, you want to marry me? I'm not marrying you. Until you transfer all your possessions to me. I want the Maserati, I want the real estate, I want the vacation home in Colorado. I want it all. He says, are you crazy? She says, no, i very normal. But you want to marry me? This is my demand. Don't marry me. Okay, now, you know, a man wants to marry the woman, he'll do anything. In the intern. this guy was no kid. He was a grown man who had been married before with a family. His older son heard that he's about to sign over his millions to this woman who came out of nowhere. They have a word for it in our world. It's called a gold digger. And the son starts screaming, bold. You're leaving me with nothing. I've got a family with 12 kids. I was relying on my inheritance. You know, misers make great ancestors. You're going to leave me without anything because you want to marry this woman. As they used to say in the old country, mir, That's Russian. Not, not, not in my life. So he goes to witnesses and he says to two witnesses, the The father, the husband-to-be, grabs two witnesses and he says, listen, go quietly. Shah. The I want you to document all my possessions goes to this here son. And by the time I give this lady all my possessions, it's nothing. There's, no, there's nothing there. All my possessions is none. He then handed over, he wrote over, he signed over all of his possessions to her. When he saw him, he married her. Mazel tov. She thinks she's worth a billion dollars. She can't buy a banana with the money. The question came before the sages. Here, the guy wrote a secret deed, and then he wrote a revealed deed. Which is the real deed? So they said, you know what the law of determination was? The decision of the rabbinic court was... The son didn't acquire. The son gets nada. the woman gets nothing. The son gets nothing because it's secret. Secret gifts don't work. There's something wrong with a secret gift. The woman gets nothing because he revealed with the secret document that he didn't intend to give it to her. He just wanted to marry her. All right, he wanted to trick her. He's almost being compelled to do it. She's blackmailing him. You want to marry me? This is what it cost you. How do we know that he didn't really want to give it to her? Because he revealed his true state of mind in the first gift. Even though we just said the first gift is null and void because it was... let's use modern words, not recorded. Because it was a secret. Says the this story will be axiomatic for anything similar the hidden gift is no good because it's hidden the other gift even though revealed is no good because the gift that was given prior to it reveals that his heart was not in it gifts need the heart not sales sales don't need the heart sales just need sincerity it needs honesty now we have a situation where there are two documents two legal documents we're talking about a situation where the legal documents were transferred to the recipients without the transfer having been observed by witnesses because had they been observed by witnesses the recipient to receive the document first would acquire the field but here Mr. A comes and he has a document dated this is this date. Mr. B comes, he has a document the identical date. One says, transferred to me, the other says, transferred to me. Who was it transferred to first? Well, if we have witnesses, we say this one was 11 o'clock, and this one was 2 o'clock. So the 11 o'clock one comes first. Here, we don't have a time. We don't have witnesses who were there, but seeing the transfer. Well, youksum also has two documents written on one field. And here, this works with a sale as well, or a gift. The local custom is that they write hours, time. For example, today, many legal documents are timestamped. For this reason, whoever comes first, comes first. But if you don't have a timestamp, here's an interesting law. Then this case is handed over to the, to the court. And the rabbinic law, the Torah law, trusts the court that the court will make the best decision they can based upon what they see and hear. And they don't really have to show why they did it, because there is no why. The document is a document at the same date, but we trust that they will make the best decision. And that's a, a very unique law called Shudor shudor the Daini, that the Torah or rabbinic law gives complete confidence to the judges. It's the judge's option. In, in the world of American law today, judges are also given a tremendous amount of power. With a document, we have no knowledge that any acquisition, any act of Kenyan was done. Actually acquired the field with the document. You don't need a Kenyan when you have a document. In real estate. We have no knowledge who got it first. So is the field Mr. A's? Of course, he got it at 11 o'clock. Or is it Mr. B's? Maybe he got it at 10 o'clock. We don't know. But if there was also an act of acquisition called a we know what time the Kenyan was. Then the Kenyan brings about the acquisition. Let's ask the witnesses. What time the Kenyan was? So also the witnesses say that the Document was delivered first to this guy. and the first guy acquires. Now you have two documents, two contracts, written to the same recipient, (coughs) the same field, but they have two different times. Same person, same time. Same, I'm sorry, same person, same field, different
1: time. What if
0: one document was a sale? The other was a gift. the first document was a gift, the second was a sale, We're not going to say that the document of the sale will nullify the document of the gift. Because others can say, one can argue In order to add the acceptance of full responsibility, in case something happens, he added the fact that it was a purchase. Because one would think that when somebody gives a gift, then he has less responsibility to back up his gift. Therefore, it was made a sale, which means that nobody can come and foreclose, and so on and so forth. Even though it didn't specifically talk about responsibility, we learned earlier that the rule is whether or not it talks about taking full responsibility, meaning that if it's foreclosed upon, he's responsible, the fact that it doesn't say that is just a, an error. Every deed concerning a property implies that. A deed implies responsibility. You can't, sell something, someone that doesn't you can't sell someone something that doesn't belong to you. Obviously, it has to be yours. You take responsibility. The second one is a gift. We say you acquired it from the moment of the first document. And date is important. It depends when the guy is trying to come and say, I have a lien. What date is your lien? The reason he wrote a deed of gift is to give him a stronger position. To protect him against the claim of a neighbor. We learned earlier that in the case of a sale, a neighbor can come and say, I take priority. I want the field to be attached to my field. They so give the same price. In the case of a gift, no neighbor has priority because the recipient of the gift cannot be told, go get a gift somewhere else. There is no gift for me somewhere else. Test the final paragraph of our chapter. What if they were both sales or what if they were both gifts? Both of these documents written to the same person, the same field, in case of Hashemi, if the second one has any addition whatsoever, and the first one is sustained. Because we could, imagine, argue that the second one was written because it has a little bit extra information. But the first one was true, and was valid. The second one nullifies the first, and the responsibility is hooked into the timestamp of the second. What's the difference? Very simple. Because therefore, All of the produce enjoyed by the buyer from the time of the first contract until the second, if we say the second is a real one, they have to be returned. Or if there was an annual taxation levy from the king on that field, the donor or the seller, has to pay that taxation. I'd say we have property tax. Then the donor or seller has to pay the property tax until the date of the second valid document. End of chapter five. Rambam, Mishneh Torah. Heuchez, the laws of acquisition, Umatona and gifts, chapter six. The Rambam establishes a law which we touched upon in the previous chapter. We always want to assess the intent of the donor somebody's giving away a gift what was in his mind what was his mindset if the facts reveal to us now as we look back at the facts we see his mindset then the mindset plays an important role in the reality even though he doesn't specifically state it in general mindsets are very unimportant in law here because it's a gift it's very important case out for example and here's a very interesting example there was a fellow whose son traveled overseas back then overseas was a very dangerous journey You know, pirates, all kinds of tsuris. And then he gets word that his son died. And subsequent to that, he transfers everything he owns to someone else. Because he has no son. At least we think it's because he has no son. What kind of gift did he enact? Above board, on the record, 100% above board. Everybody knew about it. No secret. And then, miracle of miracle. And then the son shows up. He says, hi, dad, I'm back. There were no pirates in the Caribbean. I was just away shopping. (coughs) Ain't mat we say the gift that the father made to a stranger is invalidated. Because you know and I know. There's only one reason he did that. Because he was brokenhearted. hearted. Because the narrative around this story reveals. <coughs> and he known that his son is alive and well. He would not have given everything away to a stranger. So what we're really deciding law upon is an assumed mindset. But an important one. Therefore it stands to reason that he left something in his estate over. He didn't give it all away to a stranger. He gave some of it away by the real estate or movable objects in that case his gift is sustained because he left some and he could have been really hoping deep in his heart that his son would show up and that's why he left some so the fact that one does not convey transfers entire estate makes it more plausible than it was with his whole heart based here's a fascinating teaching let me give you a little bit of an introduction to torah and rabbinic law of inheritance now the laws of inheritance are coming up we haven't touched upon the laws of inheritance yet but anybody who knows some basic chumash knows a few facts fact number one israel was divided by tribes And the Jewish law of inheritance is a tribal law, a patriarchal law, because it is assumed that the woman will move to her husband's tribe, because that's his land. It is assumed that her husband will support her, so that father's mother father's estate is usually, by Torah law, transferred to sons, not to daughters, because the daughters inherit their husband's father's estate. Unless, as it says specifically in the whole story of the daughters of Tzlovchot, unless there were no sons. If there were no sons, then the daughters inherit in place of the sons. That's point number one we need to know. And again, the laws of inheritance are coming. We haven't even touched upon them yet. Fact number two, in Torah law, a husband has to support his wife fully, as he can afford to, during the marriage. Once the marriage comes to an end, through death or divorce, there is the ksubah. The ksubah, the marriage contract, stipulates a large chunk of money has to go to the wife. But in general, in everyday life, the wife is not the heir. She gets that chunk of money from the ksubah. The heir are the sons. So she gets a chunk of support, and she goes on her way. Unless, again, let's understand, that during a person's lifetime, anyone can give anyone anything, as long as they clarify. So that if somebody clearly states that he wants to give his wife his entire estate, that's his business. But we're talking about total law, if he doesn't state it. The tradition, the culture, the culture was the wife gets the chunk of money outlined in the Xuba. The sons inherit, the girls inherit together with their husbands, unless otherwise stipulated, or unless there are no sons. But remember, anyone can do anything they want to during their lifetime. Okay, so that's just background. Now what happened was, somebody had five sons, and he transfers all of his estate to one. Of the five sons, that's you know, I mean the other four sons are going to be running to therapists for the rest of their life. The heinach case of Kol if somebody transfers his entire estate, Matana as a gift, not as an inheritance, because as an inheritance we will learn it can't be done; it violates Torah law. But as a gift, as a gift, you can give anybody anything. Anything. be born one of his <laughs> sons? Ben Sholayi whether he was healthy? Ben Sholayi an or he was dying? Where there's a more liberal application of law, so he picks one son. I feel like he then cut out the the one son he picks was a baby in a carriage, in a cradle. Lo el We are not going to just assume that it's literal; that he really cut out all of the other children. And he just gave it to one. We can't assume that. It's not normal. What are we going to assume? That he appointed an executor? Usually, one of the children is the executor. So that when he says, "I'm writing over my estate to this and this son," it means that he should be the executor for the estate, which will be divided amongst all the sons. That makes sense. And the guy does not get the whole estate. He becomes like one of the other sons, except that he's in charge. Now, what would be the benefit to him? It's a very great benefit. We know. We can safely assume that when somebody is appointed executor for their parents' estate, they get a lot of respect from their siblings. The intent of the father was so that he would become the voice of authority in the family. But we're not going to assume that he cut everybody else out. But if he left something in his estate, then Kariko ben the some real estate, some movable object, Zahab ben In that case, we are going to assume that whatever he specified, he did give to that son. When this supply, the ben if he picked the son from many other sons. Abin Kasak on the Kas of the ben ben if he picked the son from amongst daughters. As we said earlier, daughters inherit with their husbands by Torah law. ben Or there were no sons. He picked one daughter of many daughters, and there are no sons' daughters inherit. Echot min or one of the other heirs even though didn't leave anything we do sustain his gift if somebody elects to transfer his entire estate to his wife he says I'm giving it all to my wife I don't want to open nothing I know she has a soup I want my wife to have everything whether he was healthy or this was his dying wish don't think that he cut out his children even though they made a chinyin what he means to say is that he made his wife the executor but the children will inherit Bain whether the heirs were her sons or sons of another woman or his brothers just because a man says, I'm conveying everything to my wife, it doesn't mean he's cutting out all of his other heirs, unless he specifies it. If he left anything, whether real estate or movable, that is an indication that what he said was sincere, and the wife acquires the entire estate. Now, when we talk about wife, we learned extensively earlier that by Torah law, there is a wife called a betrothed wife, where the marriage takes place, but she still lives in her father's house. It used to be for a period of six months or a year, and then the wedding would take place. These days, the betrothal and the wedding take place in the same night. When does this apply that we say that the wife acquires it all, if... She was completely married, not just betrothed. But if he wrote it to his betrothed wife, he conveyed everything to her or to his divorced wife. he left nothing over, he just conveyed everything to his betrothed wife or to his ex-wife. In that case, we're not going to assume that she is the executor because she's not connected to the family. She's either just been betrothed or she's divorced. And if she's divorced, she's not probably going to be his executor. Therefore, she becomes like any other person and his gift is sustained because you have no reason to believe that she was an executor. But again, all these laws are if we're not sure of what he really meant, these are the assumptions we make. Where if somebody transfers all of his possessions to one of his sons and to someone else, he picks one of his sons, and then he picks a stranger. So what's the deal? The stranger requires half of his possessions as a gift. The other half is left for his sons. As we said earlier, the son to whom possession was given, he was appointed to be the executor for his other brothers. He doesn't get it all. So also he transfers all of his estate to his wife and to someone else. That stranger requires half of his estate. The ishtay and his wife is an executor on for the other half of his heirs. Now, I said earlier in my introduction that, in the tradition, a woman is not the heir of her husband unless specified. Why? Because she gets a substantial chunk of money called a ksuba, t-tuba. Therefore, if she is appointed as the heir of her husband, she is given his entire estate, or a good chunk of it, she loses the rights to her ksuba, because what she received replaces the ksuba. It's either-or. And this is what he outlines now in ches. Any woman that acquires all of the possessions of her husband by gift, she loses her rights of financial benefit of the ksuba. The reason the financial benefit of the ksuba is there, so she gets a large chunk because she's not going to inherit. If she inherits, she should lose the ksuba right. This It should be torn. It should be destroyed. Therefore, we have a situation sometimes where by circumstance, she will lose everything. If somebody came along with a deed dated earlier with a lien, and he proved in court that his lien was valid, so he took it all, and there goes her gift. She gave up her ksuba. Now she has no gift and no ksuba. She gets nothing. She can't even buy Starbucks coffee. She does not get her that preceded this that because the assumption is that what she did gain was respect, because the whole world found out. Wow, he gave his entire estate to his wife. So she lost any other right, because what she gained was good PR. So when somebody transfers his possessions to his children, whether they are male children, whether female, whether he was healthy, or he was on his dying deathbed, because of the he left something to his wife. Being that he made her a partner with the heirs, and nobody objected. So she's in there. so su'basa. She also loses her rights to the sukuba. Then if to she gets nothing from this. But from possessions that will come after this moment, they tell us so she can collect her sukuba. You <coughs> attend. What if he wrote for her just movable objects? As or he left himself some real estate? In that case, being that something is left in the estate, her sukuba is. In place with Even if he left a little moveable, some movable objects, it's also because she can say, I will collect from that which he left. When the she has entry into something, she has entry into everything. You the of the Somebody transfers his entire estate to his children because of he left his wife a part of that as well. And during the lifetime of the father, one of the children passed on. She can take the ksuba from the part of the offspring who died. We say she loses her suba, she can't take it from the rest of the estate. Here, because of the death of one of the children, there is something left in the estate for her to take the if A man wants to marry, because of a man comes to a woman and he says, will you marry me? The woman says, yes. But before the marriage, she transfers all of her holdings. She was a wealthy woman. She transferred her estate, whether to her son or to somebody else. And then she got married. When it is and then you know and I know the only reason she transferred the estate to her son or to someone else is to protect it from what might be a bad marriage. I guess in general terms this is called a prenuptial agreement. When is show, and then she was divorced? Yep, the marriage didn't work. The whole marriage lasted twenty minutes. Okay, twenty months. hey she by her husband died, what happened to the gift that she got, that she gave, just to enter into this marriage without a lot of money? Not The facts show that the gift is now known void, because the gift was given for a specific intent, to protect her estate from the new husband because she's just trying to beat the system the reason she conveyed all of her estate because she didn't want her husband inheriting her because her husband inherits the wife's possessions when she dies and when she needs them this person, the son or whoever will give it back so now she needs them The if she dies during the lifetime of the husband in that case then the recipient, the son or whoever gets it all but if she left something, even movable objects, her gift is for real, the application is she the does not re- revert back, this goes back to the principle we established earlier, as long as there's something left in the estate, then that gives more credibility to the gift. Anyone who conveys all of their estate, once this gift will be nullified, and all of the possessions will revert to the original owners. The one who received the gift does not have to restore and repay all of the produce he enjoyed. Somebody conveyed a gift on the condition that after the lifetime of so and so, he returns the gift. The gift has to be returned, but the produce does not. All of the time of the gift should be as we explained. Now, somebody travels overseas. He sends back a crate of gifts for his family. Okay, who in the family gets it? Somebody's sons. Stuff from overseas. He well, says, I let this be given to my children. And he has sons and daughters. Who gets it? If he says to my children, it goes to sons and daughters. Items that are appropriate for men like scholarly books, weapons, who goes to war? Men go to war. Labonim go to the sons. was talking about the culture of the time. and that which is appropriate for girls goes to girls. claim Like for example, colored silk garments, and golden bracelets. Let the daughters do, take it. What if the objects were appropriate for male and female, and there's doubt, let the male take it. If somebody just sends a crate of stuff to his house. Why this crate? stuff. House, which is fit for daughters, you daughters not take it. It's logical to assume that he sent for them what is good for them. he has no daughters or his daughters were married we presume that his daughters are being very well supported by their husbands. We assume that he goes to his son's wives and that was the culture then that the son a man supported his wife and a woman was supported by her husband as long as the marriage was in place. Therefore it's logical that the women's gifts were for his daughters-in-law. These are assumptions. If there's a reason to say that the assumption is not in place that's fine too. Again, we're going back to the culture of those days. Someone experiences a tremendous celebration. He marries off his oldest son to a wonderful young lady. And he holds the wedding in one of the houses he owns. Beautiful estate with a beautiful house. We also assume that because the father is so excited that his oldest son married a wonderful girl, he's also going to convey the house along with the party. And again, it has to make sense. He has to have another house. He doesn't convey his only house. And it has to be logical to the culture of the time. So he assumed that he meant to give the house as well, because he was so excited by this wonderful match for his son. Provided that, number one, it's the first marriage for the son, because as the son goes into a second marriage, it loses excitement. That the father never married off another son. Sometimes a second son gets married before the first son. Again, the second wedding is not as exciting as the first wedding of a son. These are not rules that have legal application. These are more rules that come from a, an emotional background, a feelings background. Our sages touched upon these things from the assumption that they made. What was the assumption? That because the father was so joyous and had so much love for his son, who married in his first marriage, a wonderful young lady, and this is the first wedding the father made, and this is one of many houses he owns, he conveyed the house as well. That's the assumption. Because fact is, we look around, the father cleaned out all of his own possessions, and whatever he left was for the house. Therefore, we'll go back and we'll say, if the father left even one jug of oil for himself, that's an indication that the father's not going anywhere. So we don't assume that the son acquired the house. What if he set aside from the house and the furniture? Even though he left one thing for himself. If he had some kind of special treasure or something. In that case, because the father left something for himself, the son acquired the furniture, but not the house itself. Along the same lines, what he specified was, he's giving him a house that has an attic, that has a second floor. What we call a duplex. Bayez corner, the house he acquired, al Corner, the second floor he does not acquire. It's enough that the son gets the first floor. Echei if the son, if he gave the son a house with a beautiful porch, Bayez Kona he acquires the house, Achsadere not the porch. By the way, it was very, very commonplace, once upon a time, that when a man's son married, the father would give the married son residence, a place to live. We did not want the son to have to move in with his in-laws, with his wife's parents. That might present discomfort, because a girl's parents are very controlling. And therefore, you don't want to live in your father-in-law's house. So the culture developed that the father would set aside housing, at least for the earlier part of the marriage. That was a culture which I believe the Rambam is addressing. And obviously it's all about the prevailing culture. So if he gives him the apartment, he doesn't necessarily give him the porch. Maybe he wants to have a cigar on the porch. Cuban, of course. if he two houses, one within the other, like he only acquires the one he got married in. You dying probably under the sure we already explained earlier in the laws of marriage trade the That when there were two people, a man and a woman, and there was marriage discussion between them. What we call him. in today's world. They say they were dating and they were uh, speaking about, you know, objective matrimony. They were speaking about getting married. They were negotiating. You know, the, the old days, the, the parents used to get together with the parents. Some people still do it today. They negotiate: how many horses, how many mules, how many camels will you give to the kids? You give an SUV, credit cards, furniture, bedroom set, dining room set, how many sets of dishes, what level? You know. So, the father of the son and the father of the daughter make commitments to each other. The other when they say, "How much are you giving for your son?" I'm giving so-and-so. I'm a good guy. How much are you giving to your daughter? By the way, this happens today in many cultures. I have to know about it because I get to complaints later when people come to see the rabbi. You know what my fault? I don't even want to go there. How much are you giving to your daughter? So much and so much. And they had a wedding. Based upon the agreement. What's the problem? These are the laws of acquisition. The problem is no formal acquisition was made. It's just words. We have been learning all along that when it comes to sales and gifts, words are meaningless. Except that in this case, they're not meaningless because there's a marriage. And people take marriage commitments very, very seriously this acquisition only takes place up to the wedding somebody makes this commitment their intent is to get married so the pledge of the father of the bride and the pledge of the father of the groom are actual commitments and they have to be backed up now, whatever it is that they are giving has to exist because we learned earlier that one cannot transfer something that's in theory. you can't transfer the farm that you own in Moscow if you had a farm in Moscow you have to transfer what you have the person cannot transfer and convey something that doesn't exist when I have a million dollars, I'm giving my daughter a million You don't have a million dollars. You don't have a pair of socks. What are you talking about? Come as we explain. Such things are not usually written down. They don't have legal power of documents, and so on and so forth. These are marriage commitments. Now comes some sad stuff. It happens. On the condition of somebody betroths a woman. I feel a of the dollar. dinar. Even if he uses a humongous amount of money. A thousand dinar That's a huge sum of money. Instead of giving her a ring, he gives her uh, half a million dollars. I'm betrothing you with this half a million dollars. Or he gave her a ring. And then something goes wrong. Then she he whether she changes her mind; she gets what we call cold feet. Then she or he, changes his mind. But they're married; they are married. The betrothal took place. So by Jewish law, they require a divorce in order to nullify this. It's not a joke. Then she who, either another or another situation. He died. God forbid. Then she he or she dies. It happens. God forbid. Now the question is: Does the thousand dinar get returned? Somebody gets married and then, a short time later, they get divorced because he changed his mind, she changed her mind, whatever. Does the ring have to be returned? I think Ann Landers wrote about this says the, Rambam, the halacha is that the item that was used for betrothal does not have to be returned. That's a betrothal item, whether the marriage works or the marriage doesn't work. This is a 100% gift, a bona fide gift, which has no return policy. So the answer is, the item used for betrothal is forever, even if the marriage is not. Except, if the marriage was a mistake. I mean, they're all mistakes. What does it mean a mistake? If somebody betrothed a woman whose husband died at sea, and then he came and said, honey, I'm home, that's a mistake, because <laughs> he married a married woman, or anything else like that. and HaMoyz, in that case, because it was a mistake, the money has to be returned. Or, a similar situation. If somebody betrothes a woman who turns out to be his sister, or any other forbidden relationship, HaMoyz Matona, the money is considered a gift. Why? Because every person who has a basic ABC education in Judaism knows that you can't marry your sister. There are certain marriages that cannot happen by Jewish law. A man cannot marry his sister. What if he does? So he goes home. There's no divorce required. One of the teachers I had in school said, you marry your sister's like you marry your door handle. You marry the handle on your door. Do no, you need a divorce? they certain. I don't want to go right on do belong, but in Jewish law, a man cannot marry a man. Does he need a divorce? Of course not. A woman cannot marry a woman. I didn't say that. I didn't mean that. But that's the law. So in this case, he married his sister. Whatever he gave her, it was a gift. He knows it's not a marriage. tell you this is not a mistake. What he meant to do is give her a gift. It's a good thing to give your sister a gift. Why not? Okay, now comes another sad subject. Again. The deal was that a husband and wife would get to know each other. They would announce their marriage. A betrothal would take place. That's what we do in the first half of the chuppah. By law, that's considered a marriage. But then she would live with her parents for the next six months or a year or whatever time was designated. What would she do? She would uh, get ready for the wedding. She would do a lot of shopping online, of course. So he, through Amazon, would send gifts to his in-law's house. He sent gifts. Boy, did he send gifts. The truck, the UPS truck was there every day. Whether he sent a lot of gifts, Whether he sent a lot of gifts, or a few gifts. Doesn't make a difference. The volume is not what we're talking about. Whether he had the betrothal feast in his in laws' house, or he didn't have it there, or he didn't have it, or after that he died, or, he died. Or, he or she died, he changed his mind. But the fact of the matter is that he has thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of gifts that he sent, and the wedding never came full circle. The second part in his suyun, the wedding, the marriage never took place. They never lived together, his husband and wife. He was just sending gifts to his in laws in Chicago, the Windy City. What's the deal with all the presents? Does she get to keep it? Does her family get to keep it? Or should it be returned? And again, in modern times, experts in etiquette discuss these things. The Allah <laughs> is that all the gifts should be returned. Because these gifts were meant for her in marriage. The exception of what does not need to be returned is if he sent her cupcakes, if he sent her a fruit basket, because food is consumed. You don't have to give back the food. But other than that, the jewelry and the furniture and the bed, bath and beyond stuff, it all has to be returned. So also garments and items of minor value, which the groom sent to his bride to be to wear while she was living in her father's house, he wanted her, his bride, to be bedecked and bejeweled. I mean, he wanted her to wear Bloomingdale stuff, and uh, the father was putting her in Sears and Mervin all of Sears and all stuff. So he sent her good stuff, Nordstroms. And if she used them, and they began to unravel, they were lost, used clothing, and This does not have to be paid because she used them. So he got his intent, fulfilled. But if they were in good shape, they were right there. All goes back. What if the father says, do me something, I'm not giving them back to you, I don't want to talk to you, I don't want to see you, and I don't get any more emails from you, have a good day. I took you off my email list. he can collect them in court. Because it is a well-known fact, and assumption, he sent him as a complimentary gesture in order to make everything good, and this wedding ain't happening. What if she cancels the wedding? She said, I can't go through with this, I'm really sorry. She cancels it. And she's been sitting in her parents' house, living off the fat of the land. Every day, there's a FedEx truck pulls up. And then, close to the wedding, she says, Never mind. She has to return everything. She even has to pay the cheapest possible price for all the food and drink, and drink, if he sent cases of beer and cases of scotch. And, and they were living in a good days, Cuban cigars. So we give them wholesale price credit, but everything has to be returned. The scholars have agreed. For example, if we ascertain that we paid a value of six, She has to pay four, four out of six, two thirds. So she gets a third discount. Because clearly we know that the gift was only given with the intent that she would not cancel the wedding. You cancel the wedding, that's your option. But let's get the UPS and FedEx trucks going. I want it all back. And that's halacha. Again, unless there are clear stipulations by the culture of the place, which are clearly, clearly, clearly understood to be different. I would assume that that, according to some, might override it. And finally, the closing paragraph in this chapter, Chavdalit, paragraph 24. Says the Rambam, my teachers, Decreed, my teachers gave, issued, this opinion, this legal opinion. The custom of the country, of the state, of the city, of the culture where they live. That a wedding is a wedding. What happens at the wedding? You make a wedding. You go to the Beverly Hills Hotel. Okay, the Beverly Hilton Hotel. And you invite all your friends. You invite all of his friends. A wedding. Weddings are not cheap. Or he pays money to waiters, and managers, and cantors, and musicians. And he does, as is the culture. And the Rambam is talking about a culture where... The groom, based for the wedding, was that culture, so he spent a fortune. He spent a fortune. What happened the day of the wedding? She got cold feet. She said, never mind. I'm not going through with this. I have to be true to myself. That's fine. Because of her boy, she retracted her commitment to get married. Perfectly fine. But what about the money that he spent? He lost tons of money. I mean, everything is paid for. Everything is in place. What are you going to do? He's out, uh, I don't know, $100,000. Maybe more. Maybe less. She has to pay the whole bill. She can change her mind. No one can force people, and no one should force people to get married. But she caused a tremendous loss to do that in the ninth inning. Because Indirectly, she brought about a tremendous financial loss. Anybody who causes his fellow to lose money, he has to pay. And there's a lot of discussion in the commentaries whether this is considered an indirect loss or an indirect indirect. How close was this cause? Now, he can't just go and ask for a chunk of money. He needs backup. He needs witnesses to say how much money he spent. Can't just make up a number. Because he's angry. Shane said, he can't take a nose and collect anything he wants to. This has to be researched, and the claims have to be backed up. End of chapter 6.